Father, we come before you this morning with anticipation about what you want to say to us. Through your word, we thank you so much for the powerful work that it does in our hearts. Thank you for the revelation it gives us both of ourselves and of you. I pray, Lord, for the uh, wonderful verses that we'll be looking at this morning, that you would draw out all the truths from them that can transform us into the image and likeness of Christ. I pray as we talk about this important topic, confession and covering sin, that you would um, really speak to us personally about any areas of our lives in which we would be covering sin or have anything that we would need to confess. It's really repentance is an ongoing process in every, in every Christian's life, Lord, and so we pray for that work for each of us. As always, Lord, I pray for any unbelievers who have joined us, especially any unbelievers who would believe that they are believers, that the day would be the day of salvation for them, that you would help them see their need for Christ, uh, take away their confidence in themselves and in their own righteousness, Lord, and that you would give them a faith in your Son and what he's done for us. Use this time fully in each of our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, well, good to see all of you. The title of this morning's sermon is Blessed Are Those Whose Sins Are Covered. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. So in January, if you've been here for a few years, you know that I usually interrupt our verse-by-verse study through Luke's gospel for a couple sermons to begin the new year. And probably five or six months ago, I started working on some sermons that I wanted to preach in January. I'm preaching beginning um, this morning versus January 7th because I didn't want to interrupt our study in the parable of the vineyard owner. So I'm not sure if it'll be two sermons or three sermons, but um, I believe these, God's put these on my heart. I've been looking forward with anticipation to preaching them, and then we will return to our verse-by-verse study in Luke's gospel. Now on Wednesday, January 10th, Karis and Chloe baked some cookies and took them around our neighborhood to sell them, and very quickly they sold out. And if you ever do something very successfully the first time, it gives you anticipation about doing it again. And so on Friday, January 12th, they woke up and asked if they could bake more cookies and then take those cookies around to sell to neighbors. I knew that the big storm was coming, so take your minds back to that day where all you know, battening the hatches for the storm that's coming. But I told them that if they baked more cookies, I would still take them out to a different neighborhood because they had uh, pretty much visited most of the people in our neighborhood, I suspect, to sell cookies because I wanted to support their entrepreneurial efforts. So Karis and Chloe and I were walking out of the house, and guess who was standing at the door looking up at us wanting to go? Rhea. No, George, yes. (laughs) So, I brought George, even though he was not dressed warmly, and even though it should have occurred to me that he did not know how cold it was outside, and he had no idea what it was that we were doing, as a two-year-old, he simply, he has FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. As a two-year-old, he looks up and sees family members leaving the house, and so he's convinced that he must go or he's going to be missing something fun and exciting. So I brought George with me. You guys have that picture to put up? Yes, yes. You can't tell from the photo. It's about negative 30 degrees outside. But I also brought George because I thought, hey, who wouldn't want to buy cookies from him? Yes. Ignore the fact that it's freezing, and that's all he's wearing. So we go out. Things were going well. Okay, actually... No, they weren't. Things were never going well on this trip. 
People did not seem interested in buying cookies. Karis and Chloe were walking down different sides of the street, and they had asked me to make sure that I wouldn't be seen. They said, stay out of sight, Dad. Stay out of sight. Don't let anyone see you. So how does it look to everyone? Like these two girls are walking by themselves in the middle of the freezing cold night, selling cookies. So everyone who opens the door thinks, what is this little girl doing standing outside my door all by herself selling cookies while there's a National Weather Service warning? Where are her parents? Is that why she's selling cookies? Because her parents don't care for her and she needs the money. And is that a little boy who's with her? At one point, a man came out of his house to tell Chloe to bring George home. I quickly ran up to explain the situation. And I said, okay, it's okay. You see, these are my girls. They're out selling cookies. They sold them the other day. I told them if they baked more, I would take them back out again. I thought I should keep my word, even though it's really freezing outside. And I brought my son George because I wanted my wife to have a break because we have 10 kids total. And so she can get overwhelmed. Yes, I did say that we have 10 kids. Believe it or not, my story probably did not convince this gentleman that I'm anything other than a foolish father. So, did you also know that cold weather is hard on car batteries? <laughs> that was another fun part of the evening for us. I could not get the car started when we tried to leave. Now, fortunately, I had my portable car battery charger. Unfortunately, I could not get it to work. Katie called to see where we were because she knew that we were only one neighborhood over and it should not take that long to sell that many cookies. I told her what happened and she asked, do you want me to come pick you up in the bus? Now that was code for, I hate my kids being outside, let me come pick you up in the bus. I said, well, they're not really outside, they're inside the car. Unsurprisingly, that did not make Katie feel better because she knew the battery was dead and the heat would not be on in the car. Nothing really gets by my wife, you know. So she said, just let me come pick you up. And I said, hey, I bought this portable car battery charger and now I have an opportunity to learn how to use it. This did not make Katie feel better because she knows, as probably many of you know, that I am not the handiest with this kind of stuff. So I think she suspected I wouldn't get it to work. So after trying for about 5 or 10 or 47 minutes, <laughs> I still could not start the car. Katie called me again to see how things were going, which really means Katie called me again to see if she could come pick us up in the bus. I reassured her that I was going to get the battery charged, but that did not really reassure her. Now, do you remember the gentleman who came out of his house to tell Chloe that she needed to get George home? Well, it turns out he's actually a very nice guy, and by God's grace, I think he must have been looking out his window. Is that what you were doing, Jared? Were you looking out? He came this morning to church. You should give this gentleman a hand. He came out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Jared is here this morning with Natalie. So here's what happened. I don't know if Jared was just staring out his window. I don't know if he was very worried about us. But whatever the case, I couldn't get the car started. And so Jerry, Jared came out to see if I needed anything. And he said, you know, do you need some help? And I said, no, I've got it. You're starting to sound like my wife. No, I didn't say that to him. <laughs> 
So I told him that I could not get the battery charged, and he was gracious enough to tell me that he doesn't trust these car battery chargers, which I said was was gracious because it made me feel like it wasn't really owner-operator error. You know, it was more a problem with with the charger, although it was probably owner error. So he pulls his truck up next to us to jump the battery. His fiance, who's also here with him this morning, Natalie, she came out with blankets for the kids. She invited the kids into the warm truck. She gave them hot chocolate, and she gave them microwave popcorn. <laughs> now, what you might not know, Natalie, which my church knows, is I love popcorn. So that scored even more, more points with me. Now, why am I sharing all this? There were numerous times throughout that night that it was obvious that I had made a bad decision. But it was much easier to cover up my foolishness by saying things like, yes, I do think George is dressed warmly enough. Or no, I don't need you to come pick me up and I will get the kids home quicker if you stop calling me. Or telling the kids, yes, I can start the car and I will start it quicker if you stop asking me when I'm going to get it started. Or no, I don't think it was foolish to take my kids out in the middle of the night in freezing temperatures to sell cookies when nobody wants to buy them. And this brings us to lesson one. Our flesh tempts us to cover our sins. Our flesh tempts us to cover our sins. So if you ever break down, you know who to call. Jared. (laughs) Maybe Natalie will come and give you hot chocolate (laughs) and popcorn, blankets. Look at me at Genesis 2.25. Genesis 2:25. The man Adam and his wife Eve were both naked and they were not ashamed. So at this moment, Adam and Eve were not experiencing any what? It's not a trick question. I mean, what does the verse say? They're not experiencing any shame. They're not experiencing any conviction. Now, wouldn't it be great to be able to go through life and never experience shame or conviction? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And I I don't mean not experiencing any shame or conviction because we have a seared conscience or we because we've resisted the holy spirit so long we've become reprobates in the language of romans 1 we've been given over that's not what i mean i mean the freedom from shame and conviction because we have not done anything wrong but this will not be the case for us until we receive our glorified bodies until then we will continue to face temptation not always resisting it shame conviction will be common feelings for us when we give in to temptation and sin adam and eve started feeling shame and conviction as soon as they sinned look at genesis 3 5 one chapter to the right genesis chapter 3 verse 5 god told adam and eve not not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but satan says to them god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil now i want to ask you a question and this is not a trick question was satan telling them the truth when he said this was he telling the truth or was he okay let me say this was he telling them at least some truth yes he definitely was as you probably heard before satan always mixes an amount of deception with truth because deception that always contains an amount of truth is harder to discern or is more convincing than an outright or absolute lie from beginning to end which is why i've always believed that 
false religions that most closely resemble Christianity, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, will always be a greater threat than those religions that are the furthest from Christianity. <clears throat> Genesis 3.6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, Adam and Eve experienced what Satan said they would. If you never, and by the way, if you never heard of me say this before, whenever we hear the, the sound of children in service, how do we feel? Yeah, we feel thankful. We're always thankful for the children that we have around. We're thankful. That's the next generation. We're always blessed to, to have kids with us, and, and so it's always encouraging to know that God is, is giving us children to come up to know Christ and carry on the, the ministry. So Adam and Eve experienced what Satan said they would. Their eyes were opened to the knowledge of good and evil. And now that they have this knowledge of good and evil, they know that they have evil. And so they experience what now? Now they experience shame. There's at least one version, the New Living Translation, that says suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So Adam and Eve moved from being not ashamed to being ashamed, and here's an important point to understand. They're covering their nakedness, but it is a physical picture of a spiritual truth or reality. They're covering their nakedness, but it's a picture of them attempting to cover their shame that they're now experiencing. Multiple commentaries make this point. I'll read just three of them to you. Ellicott's commentary reads, the increased knowledge brought only shame, and their minds were awakened and enlarged, but the price they paid for it was their innocence and peace. Benson's commentary, to cover at least part of the shame, one from another, they made themselves these aprons. Gill's commentary reads, trying to hide their sin and shame from the all-seeing eye of God, they clothed themselves. So we looked at these verses largely for this point that this is a physical picture of the spiritual reality, that Adam and Eve are physically covering themselves with fig leaves, but it shows what they want to do spiritually because of the shame and conviction they are experiencing. And the same is true for us. When we sin, we experience shame or conviction, and we want to be covered. We want to hide it. When the fall took place, they received sinful natures. And this is what our sinful natures tempt us to do as well, to cover our sin versus confess it. That's what we see here. See them covering versus confessing. They continue to try to cover their sin by hiding from God. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because of their shame among the trees of the garden. And I think this is also a great physical picture of a spiritual reality. They are physically trying to hide from God something that's an impossibility, but it pictures the spiritual reality that when we sin, we want to figuratively hide from God, right? Again, an impossibility. We can't hide from God, but we do. How does that manifest itself for us? We sin, we don't confess, we cover, and we don't want to pray. We don't want to read the Bible. 
We don't want to be around brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't want to be in fellowship. And so that's why when people leave the church, if I don't hear about them going to another church, then I sure hope that it isn't that they are now hiding from fellowship because there's some sin in their life. But sometimes that happens where people don't want to go to church. It doesn't have to be just this church, any church. They don't want to go to church any longer because there's sin in their life. They're ashamed. They want to hide from God. They don't want to go to church where they're all experience they will experience conviction or have brothers or sisters ask them how they're doing and you know if you're guilty enough when someone asks you how you're doing you can almost look at them and think what they know what i've done they know what's going on in my life they know about this hidden sin i mean i've had i've had conversations i had a conversation with someone experiencing what seemed to me to be intense paranoia but i was convinced that it was conviction i don't think anyone knew what this individual had been doing but the paranoia had just racked him so much because of his shame. Everyone must know. People must know. My people at work must know what I've done. But even when we hide from God, he seeks us out. Look at verse 11. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, another question, not a trick question. Did God know the answer to these questions? Yes, he absolutely knew the answer. So why was he asking? Because he's given them the opportunity to, to confess, to stop covering, right? In the next sermon, we'll talk about what it looks like to cover our sin. For now, let me just say that one of the most common ways that we cover our sin is by blame shifting, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did. Look in verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and i ate so no confession or humility or repentance whatsoever in one sentence or one response adam blamed two people or put two people between himself and his sin he blamed god and he blamed the woman that god had given him now god gives eve the opportunity to move from trying to cover her sin to confessing her sin Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Of course, God knew the answer to that. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Eve follows her husband. Adam's example, she shifts blame with nobody else to blame. She's the first person to say what? She's, she can't blame God because God's already blamed. She can't blame Adam, so she blames the devil. She's the first person to say the devil made me do it. Now, let me take what will sound like a detour, but it will connect to these verses in a moment. The Greek word for atone, it's kalfare, kalfare, or excuse me, the Hebrew word, it's kalfare. And, but whether in Greek or Hebrew, the word for atone means cover. The word atone means cover. To atone for something is to cover something. You've probably heard before that making atonement for sin means covering the sin. And this brings us to lesson two. The word atone means to cover. The word atone means to cover. Just one example. Genesis 6, 14. God told Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make room in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. And that word for cover is, the, is kalfare. It's the Hebrew word for atone. So when we talk about substitutionary atonement, we are talking about a substitute cover. Let me say that one more time. We talk about 
substitutionary atonement we're talking about a substitute cover or covering for our sin so we are not the ones covering our sin instead there is a substitute who covers for our sins for us now romans 6 23 says the wages of sin is death the wages of sin is death where there is sin there must be death because the wages of sin is death for a substitute to cover or atone for our sins for us that substitute must do what oh come on we can do better than this if the wages of sin is death if there's going to be a substitute or a substitutionary atonement for our sin that substitute must do what to atone must die and we see this principle it's almost shocking I mean once you understand the requirement that substitutionary atonement would require death it's almost shocking that in Jesus's day people didn't know he would have to die to make atonement at least John the Baptist did because he looked and said behold the Lamb of God so he knew the spiritual understanding he had that for him to make substitutionary atonement for us he would have to die or be that sacrificial lamb so we see this principle throughout the old testament with the sacrificial system animals died for people's sin or another way to say it is animals died in the sinner's place just one verse leviticus 1 4 he this is the sinner he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be the offering shall be accepted for him the sinner to make atonement that's cow fare for him and so the sinner he lays his hand on the head of that animal that's about to be sacrificed to communicate the transmission of now it's not literally what happened but it's prefiguring or foreshadowing or communicating the reality of what happened by faith that this individual sin is transmitted to this animal that dies in the place of the sinner and then this animal makes atonement or covers for that person's sin and you can imagine that all of this and that's why i say it didn't literally happen that a person's sin couldn't literally be transmitted to an animal but it was all prefiguring or foreshadowing what happens with christ and our sin being transmitted or imputed to him as the lamb dying for our sins in our place as our substitute god covering us with christ's blood and the reason i'm explaining all this it might have seemed like a detour but it's illustrated with adam and eve if you look a few verses later at verse 21 genesis 3 21 the lord god made for adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them so god clothed adam and eve with garments of skin or skins which mean that god which means god sacrificed one or perhaps two animals to use those skins to cover adam and eve's sins this is substitutionary atonement this animal or animals died in adam and eve's place but what i really want you to notice from this besides just substitutionary atonement is god took away adam and eve's fig leaves right god took away adam and eve's coverings he clothed them himself god stopped adam and eve from covering themselves and he covered them and this again is another 
physical picture of a spiritual reality much of what transpires here in genesis 3 physically pictures the spiritual or has a spiritual truth being revealed or manifested behind it and in this case it shows that god doesn't want us covering our sins he wants to cover our sins for us and this brings us to lesson three god wants to part one cover our sins and you can turn to psalm 32 psalm 32 which we'll look at this morning and then in the next sermon so we are blessed because god has graciously given us someone in scripture who covered his own sin and then had god cover his sin for him let me say that one more time god has graciously given us a record of someone in scripture who spent some time my suspicion is probably close to a year covering his own sin before confessing it and then god covering his sin for him and if you know psalm 32 then you know that i'm talking about david this is the other great psalm of repentance he wrote along with psalm 51 so here's the context david commits adultery with bathsheba now we're talking about covering our sin and we mean it figuratively we come up with metaphors for covering our sin like making excuses shifting blame justifying those are all metaphors for covering our sin but david literally not figuratively covered his sin he commits adultery with bathsheba and then he tries to cover his sin by murdering bathsheba's husband uriah david continued covering his sin until god graciously sent nathan the prophet a close friend of david's to confront him and at that point david repented he later wrote this psalm we're not told how much later but i'm assuming soon after and this psalm does two very fascinating things you might read it this week and be encouraged by it especially to prepare for the next sermon david did two very fascinating things in verses one and two which we will look at this morning david wrote about the blessedness that comes from confessing sin or david writes about the blessedness that comes from having god cover our sin for us the second fascinating thing he does is in verses three through five which we'll look at next sermon david wrote about the misery that he experienced while he covered his sin so in one sermon we get to see david describe the blessedness of god covering our sin and the misery experienced when we try to cover our own sin look at me at verse one david says blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered verse 2 blessed is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit so david covered his sin i suspect for about a year and i know what david did was incredibly dark if you love david or he's one of your heroes like he is for me it's hard to imagine that this man we could look up to so much did the things that he did but i will say this about it it gives him an immense credibility an immense credibility in writing about this because what would be better if you want to learn about the misery of covering your own sin than hearing about it from a man who committed adultery and murder and how difficult or excruciating that was for him and so i'm not minimizing what david did in fact i'm maximizing what david did 
and saying that he has the credibility to talk about how excruciating it is to cover our sin and then how blessed it is for God to cover those sins for us. So David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He covers the sin by having her husband Uriah murdered until Nathan confronts him. He confesses God covers his sin, and then David writes about that blessedness. He says, my transgression's forgiven, my sin is covered, God is counting no iniquity against me. And so he, it's almost like he just can't wait to shout about it. God recognizes, or excuse me, David recognizes the greatness of what God has done for him, and he just wants to write about it. He wants to tell the world. And so he records it in this psalm. Now, David mentioned three Old Testament offenses against God and how God deals with each of those offenses. The first offense, sin. The second one, transgression. And the third offense, iniquity. We'll look at each of them, but first I want to make sure that we understand sin. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. I've shared before, so I won't spend too much time on it, that most of the world or the unbelieving world or the unchurched world views the law exactly oppositely of how it should be viewed. If you talk to most unbelievers, they will tell you the purpose of the law or the Ten Commandments is to show us how to be good or to show us how to be good enough to get to heaven. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is actually to show us how bad we are, how sinful we are, or how much we need a Savior. That when we look at that perfect standard God has set, we see how far short we fall and that we don't deserve heaven. You're not to, you're not to look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh, okay, this is the standard that I should strive to reach, and then I can be good enough to get to heaven. Humility says, this is the standard. I'm so far short of it. I need help. I am a sinner, and we find that helper. We find that Savior in Christ. Amen? And so that's the purpose of the law. Through the, through the law comes knowledge or awareness of sin. It's that speed limit sign that tells you when you're speeding. Without the law, or without knowledge of sin, God treats sin differently. Romans 5.13, sin is not counted where there is no law. If the law gives us knowledge of sin, without the law, there is a different counting of sin. Romans 5.13, sin is not counted where there is no law, or where there is no speed limit sign telling you that you've been speeding. God does not count sin against us that we're not aware of like he counts sin against us that we are aware of. And so here's the question. The sin is still taking place. What does God do with that sin that he does not count against us? He must be just. He can't allow that sin to be undealt with. And David gives us the answer. He says that God covers it. Look at verse 1. Skip the word transgression for now. We're going to come back to it. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered or atoned for. You've probably heard that the word sin is an archery term. It means missing the mark. So sin is anything less than a bullseye or sin is anything less than perfection. Now my suspicion is most of us don't have many bullseyes, do we? We have plenty of imperfection imperfections. Because sin is anything less than perfection, we sin regularly. Sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes we're not aware of it. And we would be in trouble if God expected us to confess every sin we committed, especially those that we're not aware of. 
But here's the wonderful blessing for believers, not for everyone. Notice I said for believers, for those who have put faith in Christ. David wrote that God covers those sins that we are aware of, covers those sins we've committed, or unaware of, excuse me. Now, here's the question. We're, we're talking about sins we commit that we're unaware of. We, we're talking about the sin we commit probably in every activity, every conversation, everything we do in our day-to-day lives. There's nothing about us that is perfect. That's what we mean when we talk about depravity. There's no part of us that has not been tainted or affected by sin. There's nothing that we can do perfectly. So we're committing sin that we're unaware of, and God graciously covers it for believers. But that begs the question then, what about the sin that we commit that we are aware of? David talks about that too. That's called transgression. Look in verse 1 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And this brings us to lesson 3. God wants to part two forgive our transgressions. God wants to part to forgive our transgressions. So you could have been listening to me talk about sin and say, okay, Pastor Scott, you're talking a lot about sin we're not aware that we commit. But I'm concerned about the sin I'm aware of that I commit. And that is transgression. Or when there's knowledge, then that is transgression. Transgression is knowing where that line is and then stepping over it. Transgression is seeing the speed limit sign and continuing to speed. It's knowing where that line is and still trespassing on that person's property, deliberately stepping over it, knowing what not to do or what God's law says not to do, but doing it anyway. And David would be familiar with this because we know his two transgressions, murder and adultery. He knew that God's law said not to do these things. And so when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered, those were transgressions, which is why he said this, because he knew not to do it, but he did it anyway. Now listen to this. Romans 4.15. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 4.15. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Why would it say that? Because for something to be a transgression, there must be awareness or there must be the law identifying it as a sin to be able to deliberately do it anyway. We need the law to tell us that something is sinful for it to be a transgression. Now, I'll tell you that it blesses me that David talks here about transgression and God forgiving it. It is actually even greater or more encouraging for David to say that God forgives transgression than it is for David to say that God covers iniquity. It's, it blesses me that David said God covers, covers sin, but it blesses me even more that David says that God forgives transgression. Because if David didn't, and here's why I'm saying that, here's my point. If David didn't say that God forgives transgression, if David only said that God covers sin, what would be the nagging question? Well, what about these sins I've committed deliberately? What about those sins I've committed after seeing the speed limit sign? What about when I saw the line in the sand, but I chose to step over it anyway? And all of us have 
those sins that we committed that we knew we were committing that we knew god's law said not to do that those transgressions we want to know does god forgive them and david says here god forgives those transgressions pastor nathan during announcements for that woman who was convicted but went through with that abortion anyway that is a transgression but it is still one that god mercifully forgives third day blessed is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity blessed is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity and this brings us to lesson four god doesn't want part one to count our iniquity against us god doesn't want part one to count our iniquity against us and here's why i highlight frequently when discussing this psalm the author of it and here's what i mean what if noah wrote psalm 32 i wouldn't be particularly encouraged or what if daniel or samuel i don't know of them committing adultery or murder but when someone like david writes psalm 32 and talks about god's forgiveness or god forgiving transgression and we know at least two of those transgressions that david committed i find that to be very very encouraging because i don't want to be left wondering i don't want to have some nagging question about the deliberate intentional sins that i have committed and whether god will forgive those ones or not and here we've got another category of sin iniquity what is iniquity the hebrew word for iniquity it's ava and it means bent or it means twisted it means perverted so iniquity is twisted or bent or perverted behavior so think homosexuality think bestiality think about those sins that fall outside of the natural like in the language of romans 1 that's why homosexuality is described as a sin that's against nature because it is not natural so it would fall into this category of iniquity but what do we see we see that god forgives this too blessed is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity or counts no homosexuality against that person when they've repented and believed so suppose you ever meet people who have committed iniquity or suppose you've ever committed iniquity which is to say suppose you meet someone who has engaged in perverse or twisted behavior or suppose you've ever engaged in perverse or twisted behavior then you can remind that person or you can remind yourself of psalm 32 and that god will bless this person by not counting their iniquity against them if they repent if they confess or if they stop covering that iniquity right god isn't doing this for everyone god is not forgiving every sin he is not he is not forgiving every iniquity he is not forgiving every transgression he's doing it for those who stop covering their sin and confess that sin finally david says blessed is the man in verse 2 blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit now this was to be candid with you in my studying this was initially confusing to me because it looks like david is giving categories of sins do you see how david's giving or let me say like this do you see how david is giving categories of offenses against god he's given three categories of offenses sin iniquity and transgression if like if david would have mentioned trespass here 
or he would have mentioned abomination. These are other categories of sin. But when he mentions the word deceit, this is confusing, at least at first, because deceit is not a category of sin. Deceit is a specific sin. Mentioning deceit here would be like David mentioning lying or murder or adultery or theft or dishonoring parents or covetousness, specific sins. So it doesn't seem to fit with this list that he's providing. So why did he mention deceit here? Well, I'm convinced because David was so encouraged based on the way he was living such a deceitful life that God had forgiven him for that too. And this brings us to lesson four, or excuse me, yeah, lesson four, part two. God doesn't want part two, us living deceitfully. God doesn't want us living deceitfully. If you've read 2 Samuel, in around, I think it's chapter 11 and 12, when he commits these sins, you know that if there's one word that describes David, it was deceitful. Consider how deceitful he was. First, he wants, after he learns that he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant and he can no longer hide or cover his sin, he still continues to try to cover his sin. He brings Bathsheba's honorable husband Uriah home from battle, one of David's own mighty men, and tells Uriah to go sleep with his wife Bathsheba so that believe that he has gotten her pregnant now we know we're familiar with this account but i just want you to think for a moment about what i just shared with you this means that david was going to allow uriah to raise a son believing that that son was his when it was actually david's i mean that's shocking that is incredibly dark what david was willing to do he was hoping that Uriah would go home, sleep with Bathsheba, she would have this child, and Uriah would be convinced that that child was Uriah's, and then Uriah would spend his life raising this child as his own that was actually David's. I mean, talk about deceitfulness. Talk about living a lie. When this did not work, David has Uriah murdered, and then he takes Bathsheba as his wife. He brings Bathsheba into his home, so that he can let the world think that he's what? David brings Bathsheba into his home to allow the world to think what? Oh, David, King David, what a compassionate and caring man. He would bring into his home the widow of one of his fallen soldiers. Oh, and she's pregnant with her husband Uriah's child. Uriah has tragically died in battle. She's going to be this widow who then is also a single mother but look at how gracious and kind david is he has now brought her under his wing to care for her and protect her and then, and then david's even going to raise this child that's not even his own but is the son or the child of one of his mighty men like his own child so it's all this huge lie god sends nathan to expose it so david's living this double life He's one person in public, he's another person in private, and all of this was incredibly deceitful. And if you think about all that, it makes perfect sense why David would say how blessed it is to have a spirit in which there is no deceit or in which you no longer have to live a lie. If anyone knew what it was like to live a lie or live in deceit, it was David. And so he says it's very blessed to have a clean spirit, a clean heart, right? where I don't need to feel like I'm 
carrying this huge burden on my shoulders associated with the double life that I'm striving to perform every day. Now, this sets up the next sermon because we can't tell in those verses in 2 Samuel, but we will see in verses 3 through 5 that while David covered his sin, it was excruciating for him. And what I'll say is God doesn't want us living a double life, or he doesn't want us living deceitfully. God doesn't want us carrying this huge burden on our shoulders associated with unconfessed sin or associated with sin that we are covering. That can be lifted from us when we repent, when we come out in the open, when we have clean hearts then. God wants to cover that sin for us in our place. He wants his son to be the substitutionary atonement for us, but it requires confession on our parts. Now, I want to conclude with this. The longer I preach, the more precise I strive to be. I pour over my sermons, I write out every word, I refine, I polish, and I remove words that I feel are inaccurate, and I had to go through this entire sermon, and I had to make sure that I was saying something correctly throughout. I had to make sure that I said when we try to cover our sins versus when we cover our sins. And in fact, if I ever said in the sermon, when we cover our sins, or at least if I wrote that in my notes, I made sure to fix that and write when we try to cover our sins. And why is that? Why did I do that? Why was that so important for me? Because we can't. Because we can't. And I didn't want to stand here and say, hey, when we cover our sins, when you cover our sins, when I covered my sin that time, because we can't cover our sins. We fail. We still see our sin. It is always before us. It plagues us. It hurts us. It hurts us spiritually. It hurts us emotionally. It hurts us mentally. As we're going to see in the next sermon, it even hurts us physically. That's what's surprising is in the following verses, you're going to see David talk about the physical toll not just mental, emotional, and spiritual that was being taken on him, the physical toll from covering his sin. But when we confess our sin and God covers it, that sin is hidden from sight. It is never to be seen again, separated as far as the east is from the west. Now, if you've been squirming in your seat this morning, that's called conviction. You should on to that. You should be thankful that God's Holy Spirit is working on your heart. I mean, one of the things when I was going to the sermon with Katie that I know is a plague to the church is pornography. If you listen to this and there's anything in your life that you're looking at that you shouldn't, there are few things that will be as destructive to a person's sanctification as sexual impurity or pornography. There are few things that will ruin relationships with others. There are few things that will compromise or ruin our relationships with Christ as much or faster than pornography. And so there's help for that. You have elders here who love you and who want you to have victory in that area. And so if that's something that plagues you, or if there's any other sin for that matter that plagues you, reach out to one of the elders. We're here. We want to see you have victory in whatever sins you might be convicted about while I'm preaching. That's one of the wonderful things about preaching is I know how far I can go. I can't see your hearts. But I know that if I'm faithful to go this far, then God's Holy Spirit goes the rest of the way. 
And I know that if I preach, then God's Holy Spirit meets you in that pew and convicts you about anything in your life that he wants you to repent of. And so I just want to say, don't resist that conviction. Be willing to make that confession that God has burdened you with. Twice David says at the beginning of verses 1 and 2, that the man who experiences, experiences this is blessed. The Hebrew word for blessed, it's a share, and it means, maybe you've heard this before, to be happy. Blessed means to be happy. According to David in Psalm 32, he says, happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I will be up front after service, and I speak for the other elders when I say that they would be as available as well and consider it a privilege to be able to speak to you about anything, questions, or conviction you might have. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for recording so accurately even the transgressions of the great heroes of the faith like King David. What an encouragement. The Noahs or the Daniels, although Noah got drunk, but Daniel or Samuels, these other men who look so impeccable to us, <clears throat> they can be great encouragements, Lord, but there's another level of encouragement that comes from reading about a man like David and the blessedness he experienced when he was forgiven for the transgressions that he committed. And so I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for his life, his repentance, his humility, and most importantly, what you did for him. Lord, help us not to take any of that for granted. And I would just pray, Lord, on behalf of, of this church, you've graciously chosen me to shepherd these people, Lord, that you would work in each person's heart, and if there would be any areas in which repentance and confession should be made, that you would make that clear to each of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.